it was crazy to see your face on the front page of newspapers and to hear the prosecutors spreading lies. We begin with one of the most unusual and lengthy criminal court battles you may ever hear about. It all started in Iraq in 2007 with U.S. contractors accused of killing innocent civilians in the heat of war. I feel like investigative journalism is dead in our country. I feel like that nobody even bothers to look. They just take whatever they're spoon-fed by the media. It was one of the worst killings of innocent civilians by U.S. contractors in Iraq and a huge blow to America's efforts to stabilize the country. You can look at my case for five minutes and you can figure out that I'm innocent. Disbelief is the first word that comes to mind. I mean, something you can't even fathom. There wasn't a lot of anger for me in hearing the false things that were being said about him. It was more disbelief. Because there was no way that if anyone had ever taken five minutes with this person, that they could possibly believe any of that to be true. You can't fight the truth. You can't fight for the truth when the people that you're talking to don't speak that language. They weren't our peers. They have no idea what we're talking about. And they're listening to a prosecutor who has no idea what we're talking about. And he can spin everything that's said about an incident into something that's bad because they don't understand what is being told to them. Judge Ricardo Urbina's message about not allowing the judiciary to mess about in foreign policy didn't make much of an impression on the U.S. Department of Justice in the fall of 2007. After a slapdash investigation, the Department of Justice was ready to put on its case against Raven 2-3. A grand jury was convened in November of 2007 to consider charges against Blackwater contractors Dustin Hurd, Paul Slough, Nick Slatton, and Evan Liberty. At this point, the case also included Donald Ball, a turret gunner from the first truck who reported that he also shot at the white Kia during the gun battle in Nassur Square. But the government's entire case was based on the confidential statements the men had made, even though they'd been told that these statements couldn't be used against them in court. The government's own experts warned that the case was dead on arrival. The statements have been leaked to the international media, and dozens of stories of dubious accuracy were circulating in the U.S., Baghdad, and around the world. The witness accounts had already started to shift as they incorporated what they'd heard in the media and what they'd read in the statements. Prosecutors withdrew the case, knowing that it was hopelessly tainted, and decided to try again with a second grand jury. And... Gina, if you thought the in-country investigation was shady, we do hear what happens next, except this time on American soil to American citizens, American soldiers. It's enough to make the blood freeze in your veins. This is Raven 2-3, Presumption of Guilt. We are Michael Flaherty and Gina Keating. During this process, they, the prosecution, the DOJ, did come to you and offer you plea agreements, I understand. Can you tell me about that? Uh, yeah. 
In the year it took for prosecutors to go before that second grand jury, they tried a couple of standard DOJ tricks to close the case. They began an aggressive campaign of trying to force the Raven 2-3 men to plead guilty and turn on one another. They were doing everything that they could to get us to turn on each other. You know, we had no clue. We were still contacting each other via email. You know, whenever they kept coming and asking me and asking me if I wanted a deal, I take it they wasn't doing. You know, they were trying to get me to, to roll on them to turn against my brothers. I just wouldn't do it. There's no way. I mean, why would you admit guilt for something that you didn't do? It, there's no logic in that. And I'm not going to lie, it's just to save my own ass. That's not who I am or what I am. I mean, why would you admit guilt for something that you didn't do? It, there's no logic in that. And I'm not going to lie, it's just to save my own ass. The government did reach out to me and, and offered uh, a plea agreement, but I was pretty much, to be honest, I was appalled at, 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 the, at the offer, and I, I would never consider that because I always wanted to clear my name. I consider myself innocent, and, and I would never accept uh, guilt for something that I didn't do. I always wanted to clear my name. I consider myself innocent. And I would never accept guilt for something that I didn't do. But the Department of Justice only needed to intimidate one man into following the Department of Justice's version of events that day, rather than an accurate retelling of what happened. And they found their man in Jeremy Ridgway. He folded like a cheap lawn chair under the prosecutor's threats. About a year after he returned from Iraq, November 18th, 2008, Jeremy Ridgway stood in the Washington, D.C. courtroom of Judge Royce Lamberth and pleaded guilty to one count of voluntary manslaughter and one count of attempted manslaughter. The prosecutors promised to recommend a light sentence if Ridgway agreed to testify against his teammates whenever he was called to do so. And this is the guy the government chose as its star witness, Mike, a known perjurer whose conduct in Nassur Square was questioned by his own teammates. Remember Tommy Vargas talking about Ridgway nearly melting the barrel of his assault rifle in Nassur Square? The prosecutors did this on purpose. They didn't have any actual evidence of bad conduct to convict the other Raven 2-3 defendants, so they enlisted the man who had actual exposure to criminal charges. Ridgway shot at least two unarmed Iraqi men. His own teammates described him as out of control that day and said Ridgway complained that they took my weapon of death after the incident. More than any of the men of Raven 2-3, Jeremy Ridgway was in trouble. And he knew it. He was the weak link. But in his first sworn statement on September 16, 2007, this is how Ridgway described his actions in Nassur Square. As we entered the traffic circle near the area of Gray 87, I heard the sound of gunfire and observed a white sedan entering the traffic circle from the south and heading directly towards our convoy. I perceived this to be an immediate threat upon my life and the lives of those in my convoy. I observed muzzle flashes and the sound of automatic gunfire coming from the southwest approximately 200 meters from my position. 
I continued to hear automatic gunfire, however, I could no longer determine where the fire was coming from. And here's what Ridgway said in an email to his father on September 17, 2007, less than 24 hours after the incident. The Department of State may choose to get rid of us. However, we did nothing wrong, so I assume this will blow over. But it didn't blow over. And almost a year later, in August of 2008, Ridgway began negotiating with the DOJ. His attorney sent a letter reiterating Ridgway's claims that he had behaved honorably, courageously, and responsibly at every point during the incident. The targets he fired at were real threats. He'd seen muzzle flashes exactly where his teammates had reported them. That version got him exactly nowhere with the DOJ. No deal. A few weeks later, Ridgway told the government that he would testify against his former teammates in exchange for immunity. And that's when his story changed, radically. Here's the exchange between Ridgway and Assistant U.S. Attorney Anthony Asuncion, straight from the 2014 trial transcript. All right, Mr. Ridgway, I just want to make sure we understand what you testified about today. You didn't see any insurgents at all that day. No, sir, I did not. And you didn't see anyone firing at your convoy that day? No, sir, I did not. And you didn't see anyone or anything that you perceived to be an imminent threat to you that day? No, sir, I did not. And you nonetheless decided to shoot? Yes, sir, I did. And you do understand that you were shooting at unarmed people? I do understand that, sir. Ridgway would play a key role in all three trials, and the DOJ was keen on protecting his post-plea bargain version of events. But Ridgway's alternative facts were the least of the prosecutor's problems. They also had to contend with the tainted witness statements that killed the first grand jury indictments. For the second grand jury, they tried a new tactic. Instead of calling live witnesses who might repeat the forbidden testimony, or worse, contradict Ridgway's new version of events, the DOJ decided to summarize the testimony of its main witnesses. These were an Iraqi taxi driver named Mr. Al Mamori and Raven 2-3 team members Matt Murphy, Mark Mealy, and Adam Frost. Murphy, Frost, and Mealy were riding in the first two trucks and hadn't seen much action, but all had sworn that they had heard or saw evidence of enemy fire. Mr. Al Mamori made a few curious and inaccurate statements during his initial FBI interview in 2007. He swore he had seen men shooting into Nassau Square from airplanes with rifles. He also said that the turret gunners in the second Blackwater truck, the one driven by Frost and Murphy, were first to shoot at the white Kia. That is also incorrect. The grand jury never heard these statements because prosecutors knew they would have to undercut Mr. Almamori's credibility by doing so. I'll let Donald Ball's lawyer, Stephen McCool, explain exactly what went wrong here. In a letter to the DOJ, McCool listed the evidence that the government was obligated, but failed, to present to the grand jury. He also pointed out serious ethical lapses by prosecutors Kenneth Cole and Jonathan Malice. 
The misconduct is so egregious that McCool threatened to report the prosecution team to the Office of Professional Responsibility if they indicted his client. Prosecutors later dismissed Donald Ball from the case without comment. McCool points out here that Cole and his prosecutors either just flat cold lied about what the witnesses said or hid evidence that contradicted their theory of the case. Mr. Cole purposefully manipulated the Iraqi witness accounts so the grand jurors would not learn what some of the witnesses reported seeing gunfire from helicopters or airplanes, and that other witnesses saw shots fired from Vehicle 2, where Messrs. Murphy and Frost occupied the turret positions. Mr. Cole did this because he did not want to undercut his theory of the case. That is, no shots were fired from the air or by Messrs. Murphy and Frost. Stephen McCool knew the rules because he'd sat on the other side of plenty of these cases. He once was an assistant U.S. attorney himself, and he warned the prosecutors that they had stepped far over the line of ethical conduct. The main thing McCool was worried about was something called a Brady violation. This is when prosecutors withhold something called exculpatory evidence. That's evidence that exonerates the person who's on trial or casts doubt on the credibility of the witnesses testifying against them. Here's what McCool said to prosecutors in his letter. For some reason, Mr. Malice decided not to present transcripts of a number of Blackwater witnesses who testified in the first grand jury that took incoming fire on September the 16th, 2007. Indeed, Mr. Malice and Mr. Cole had statements from other witnesses not connected with Blackwater who reported that they heard AK-47 gunfire. Instead of presenting this exculpatory evidence, Mr. Cole worked hard to keep evidence of incoming gunfire from the grand jurors. We asked criminal defense attorney Joseph Lowe, who has tried and won many cases involving alleged war crimes, about Brady violations. Can you tell me what a Brady violation is just for people who don't understand what it is? What it stands for is a rule of law which says that prior to a trial of a defendant or defendants, the government is required to give to the defense all exculpatory and even potentially exculpatory information. And usually, specifically, it deals with those witnesses that will be testifying against the defendants. So when there is an accusation of Brady violation, what it means is the government had potentially exculpatory evidence in their possession that they failed to provide to the defense prior to trial. The rules, even the ones from their own rule book, didn't mean much to the DOJ. On December 4th, 2008, the second grand jury returned an indictment against Nick Slatton Paul Slough, Evan Liberty, Dustin Hurd, and Donald Ball. They were charged with multiple counts of voluntary manslaughter and weapons violations for supposedly aiding and abetting the killing of innocent Iraqis in Nassau Square. Remember, there was no physical evidence linking their weapons to any of the victims. There were no autopsies, and there was no forensic evidence 
But now we're back in Judge Urbina's chambers, a month before the trial of the Raven 2-3 men was set to begin. It's December, and Urbina is having none of it. He crafted a scathing 90-page opinion, throwing the entire case out for some of the same issues that Stephen McCool raised. Prosecutors conveniently left out evidence that Raven 2-3 came under attack. The summaries they presented to the grand jury were slanted to favor the prosecution's theory of the case. But worst of all, the government used the men's sworn statements, given with the promise that they would not be used to prosecute them, to influence the testimony of other witnesses. Here's an actor reading from Judge Urbina's decision, handed down on New Year's Eve, 2009. This reckless behavior was in keeping with the way the prosecution conducted itself throughout the grand jury process as it withheld the testimony of numerous witnesses who had provided substantial exculpatory evidence to the first grand jury, presented the second grand jury with distorted and self-serving summaries of the accounts of the other witnesses, and implied to the second grand jury that the defendants had given incriminating statements to the State Department investigators, which the government could not disclose to the grand jury because they were given in exchange for immunity. Judge Urbina was also troubled by the quality of the evidence, or lack thereof, that the prosecutors were using to bring multiple criminal charges. The court notes that Nisor Square was not sealed as a closed crime scene between the shooting on September 16, 2007 and the arrival of FBI investigators several weeks later. Agent Skolan testified that when he visited the scene shortly after the incident, he noticed an Iraqi man, possibly a police officer, who appeared to be walking through the scene and picking up objects that uh, may have been evidence. Agent Skolan testified that the scene was extremely clean, picked clean as if it were being groomed for a garden. We asked Joseph Lowe to help us understand what should have happened had this been a typical criminal case tried in a typical American court. To me, this was one of the most troubling aspects of this case. Okay, so I, I've told you that the FBI didn't show up on this scene um, and for three weeks to gather evidence. So as a defense lawyer in that situation, what do you do when you have this type of situation where there's no chain of custody for this evidence? Like what should happen here? Because it gets thrown out. If you cannot verify that the evidence coming into court is pure and clean, then it should not be allowed to taint the trial. Again, this is going to be philosophy, but it is this. It's this question, and this is the question I ask jurors. What is a greater crime to you? If a guilty person goes free, or if an innocent person gets convicted? Depending on how you answer that question will determine everything else that happens from here on out. And if you are like me, I tell the jury this, and I believe that 5, 10, 
fifteen, a hundred, thousand guilty people go free to ensure that not a single innocent person goes to prison, I'm good with it. Judge Urbina issued his ruling on New Year's Eve, 2009. The symbolism was perfectly appropriate. For the men of Raven 2-3, the first decade of the new century had been one of violence, injustice, and terror. But now, it was time for a new decade. It should have been the last act of a tragedy. Here's how the men of Raven 2-3 and their families experienced that day. First, we'll hear from Paul's wife, Kristen. That was one of the more memorable days of our entire lives because we had been through a lot. So the incident was in 2007 and the case was dismissed on December 31st of 2009. So two years later, here we are. We were actually, you know, we had been in D.C. for three weeks for for evidentiary hearings. And then we had gone home and we had basically just been waiting to hear what was going to happen next. We had no idea So we received a call from our legal counsel and we were at my parents' house. You know, we're going to celebrate New Year's Eve that night with my family. We don't go, you know, we don't go out on New Year's Eve. We always stay in. And um, we just get this phone call that, you know, the case has been dismissed, that the judge's, um, you know, opinion was so scathing that an appeal would be extremely difficult. And, um, you know, things were just so positive and it was and it just struck me as like so wild that we get this phone call on New Year's Eve and we got to start the next year fresh and like you know relieved of this burden that had been following us around since 2007 it had been such a daily stressor for us so um it was um i mean we both cried my parents cried we were all so excited um, to start the new year fresh without that monkey on our back. Evan Liberty was driving home to New Hampshire, the state whose motto is live free or die. He was with his girlfriend, Paula, when he got a phone call from his lawyer, Bill Caulfield. We were driving back to New Hampshire. It was uh, like, like you said, it was December 31st, 2009, it was snowing, and I got a call from my lawyer, so I immediately said, I wonder what he wants, so I answered the phone call, and he said that he had my dad on the other line, or he had my dad on the line, but he was um, required to tell me first that uh, all all charges were dropped against all of us, so immediately I was ecstatic, and and I really, I started to cry and I was so emotional and happy that the whole ordeal was finally done with. So we drove back to Rochester and I met my my mom and my, my dad at the restaurant where my mom worked and my best friend showed up with his wife and we all had dinner and we were celebrating that, that the ordeal was finally finished and I could go on with my life. Yeah, um, normally I, I, I'm not a drinker, I, I don't like to drink beer or anything, but on that day, my, my best friend Chris told me that it, it was especially it was a special occasion and it, it deserved 
uh, a, a beer to celebrate. So uh, I, I did drink a beer on that day, December 31st, 2009. May have been the last beer I drank. Their happiness was tempered with fear. Their lawyers explained that while they'd scored a victory, the ordeal was far from over. Here's Brian Liberty explaining how they all felt. And his wife and myself were just almost going into the restaurant when Evan's lawyer, Bill, called us. And he told us that, you know, Judge Brino had thrown this out. And of course, you know, is this the end of it? Blah, blah, blah. And Evan's lawyer said, you know, don't get too excited because they, they're probably going to appeal us. But as far as today, all the charges have been dropped, just been thrown out. And that was the only time, if <laughs> we went in, that was the only time that I ever saw Evan have a beer, and it was because of Chris Russelvich forcing him to. But the opinion of a distinguished judge and the eyewitness testimony of American veterans and heroes didn't seem to be good enough. The curtain was about to rise again on a farce. As you know, the Raven 2-3 case has nothing to do with justice and everything to do with politics. In Iraq, the news spread rapidly. It provoked a terrible unease in the office of the new United States Secretary of State, Hillary Clinton. On Saturday... January 2nd, 2010, at 8.53 a.m., Secretary Clinton fired off an email to Harold Coe, the legal advisor to the State Department. Harold, first, Happy New Year to you and your family, and thank you for all your great work this past year. I am looking forward to the year ahead. Second, what can we do about Judge Urbina's ruling? Can the U.S. file a civil action against the company? pay restitution to the victims? What other options do we have? All the best, H. is a production of Think Again Studios. It's written by Gina Keating and Mike Flaherty. Our producers are Ashton Smith, Gina Keating, and Mike Flaherty. Executive producers are Chai Ling, Lindsay Fellows, and Valerie McGowan. Mitchell Weinbaum and Jonathan Compton edited this episode. Mitchell also serves as our associate producer along with Kyle Hartford and Tina Graff. Our actors are Kevin Miller, Kurt Brinkman, Elizabeth Benz, Paul Keegan, and Jaden Marquez. 
Lindsay Fellows and Aaron Fullen supervise the music. Our theme song is performed by Chloe Caroline. Thanks to Anne and Neil Corkery for their kindness and generosity. Finally, we owe a debt to our men and women in uniform. Thank you for defending our freedom so that strangers may one day enjoy them as well. For more information about this podcast, go to thinkagain.me. There you can find additional research and primary resources regarding the case of Raven 2-3. You can learn about future episodes and receive updates as events continue to evolve. You can also learn more about our future projects, as well as award-winning films, music, and books created by our team. Thanks to everyone who donated so much of your time and talent to this passion project. Standing on that front line.